It is so hard not to introduce you as uh, Jason Fried of 37 Signals. You can do that. I'll just correct you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... <I'll> just, <laughs> you, and I, I will also admit, and I'm, this is the show, I'm, I'm going from here. Yeah. Uh, I will admit that when you tweeted the announcement, I fell for it. I forget, uh, I forget exactly what you wrote, but you were like something like after 13 years, after 14 years, it's been a good run, but it's uh, time to leave 37 Signals. And something I was like, like that. Yeah. I was like, what? I, I really was just like, what? I fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and then I clicked through. And of course, the big news is uh, that you've – well, you, t- you say it. What, what have you guys done? Well, I'm the new CEO of Microsoft. Actually, so <laughs> great timing that I decided to to switch. Um, we, we've switched the company around a bit, so um, we're now Basecamp. So we we decided that 37 Signals as a name and as a company um, is no longer, and instead we're going to focus exclusively on just one product. That's Basecamp, and with that, we're going to change the name of the company to Basecamp just to reinforce the fact that that's what we're all about. And uh, it's good for reinforcement internal, internally and also externally, and that's what we're doing now. Uh, and, it's, you know, I, I, I think Instant Messenger uh, right afterwards, and I thought about it, and it was like, you know, as soon as you said it, I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And then I thought about it, and I thought, you know what, that is such a base camp thing to do. I had the same reaction when I first came up with the idea or first started thinking about this. And actually, this is an idea that was tossed around. Um, Ryan Singer and I, Ryan's uh, someone who works works with me. Um, For a long time. He, yeah, he's been with me since uh, 2000, I think three it was. It has been now. So he's been around for a long time. And a few years ago, we started sort of tossing this idea around, but not not as clearly, but there was something in the works there. And then uh, it just hit me again in August, and it just made sense. And um, but when I first thought about it again, I, I was just like, "This is this is kind of nuts." I mean, Thirty Seven Signals has been around for fifteen years. We've a lot of people know about us. A lot of people know about the name. There's a lot of um, history with the company, and it's just crazy just to change your name. But it all made sense. The more I thought about it, it just was so absolutely spot on uh, that we we had to do it. Well, the big thing is that it's not. Um and you guys clarify this. You guys have a great fact up on the old 37signals.com domain. But the main point, people, you, you hear something like this and a company makes a big pivot or change like this. Usually, I, I would say almost overwhelmingly, usually, it's because they're in trouble or or it's bad news in some way. And this is – it's the opposite. You guys have never been bigger. You yeah, have, I mean, how, many, how many people do you have? How many employees? We're 42 now. That's crazy to me. Yeah. I remember when you guys were, you guys for years were working out of like spare office space at Kudal's studio. That's right. Yeah, like we had spare about. Spare space. <laughs> spare. Yeah, we had like five desks and we had a few extra people who weren't in Chicago. But for a long time, we've been, you know, fewer than 10. And, and we've, you know, but we've been in business for a long time. So just, you know, every few years, we had a few more people. We've never gone on a hiring spree or anything like that, but over time, you know, it just compounds and we end up at 40 some odd people. But you guys, um, you guys have cut products, but you guys are not cutting staff at all. No. Yeah. Business has never been better for us. Revenues, profits, highest they've ever been. Um, 
And uh, this, yeah, this is not a cutting staff or a cutting back because we need to. It's because we want to. Um, and and now everybody at the company, all of us, are going to be focused on the same thing. So and there's plenty of work to go around. I was just talking about this. You know, you've been around for a long time, so you you remember this. And software development, at least on the web, used to be so simple. It was you just make a web app. And now you know, Basecamp basically is five products. It's Basecamp. It's Basecamp for iPhone. We're working on Basecamp for iPad right now. It's Basecamp for Android, which we just announced. Um, and, you know, you could say there's Basecamp for email because Basecamp works really well with email. And these are technically all separate platforms, separate code bases. We reuse some web views here and there, but, you know, they're really different. And so even if you have one product, you, you have five products now, and that's a lot of work. So there's plenty of work to go around. Yeah, I, I was just saying on last week's show with M.G. Siegler that I think that's this the key to Facebook remaining relevant and successful, even though Facebook came up and exploded and went IPO during this whole period where the whole industry has, has shifted, uh, where it was created and it was just a web, it was a web thing. You typed facebook.com in a browser and that's how you used Facebook. But they've clearly made a change where they see Facebook as a service and there are, there's the website and there are apps and the apps might be on the phone, might be on tablets, might be anywhere. But it's not just a web page anymore or a web app. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's funny because Facebook, Facebook's been doing a bunch of, you know, like you said, a bunch of these smaller apps, and I'm sure they have many more planned. And you know, even though it's Facebook the company and Facebook the product, they they have a variety of other things, of course, that they're working on and other products that tie into it. And it really is more of a service. It's almost like a protocol or something now. And and uh, you know. That's how they can keep all these great engineers busy is because there's a lot of stuff going on. It's not just Facebook.com anymore. It's, it's a million things. And so we're, you know, we're in the same boat, obviously much smaller scale. But um, what's actually funny is Basecamp's birthday and Facebook's birthday are the same day. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, we both launched our companies at February 4th, uh, 2004. We, we officially announced Basecamp on our blog on the 5th. So that's technically how when we announced it. But... It, it actually went live the night before on the 4th, so it's kind of funny to see how things have shaken out over 10 years. <laughs> you know what? That's funny. You say that. I, uh, I I never would have thought of it otherwise, but it totally rings a bell because here's what I remember is I first announced Markdown as a public beta in March of 2004. And no I, kidding. I didn't know it was that long ago. Yeah, it's wow. coming up on 10 years. But what I remember is, and I don't remember how I did this. I, I don't because my son's birthday was last month in 2004. He just turned mm -hmm. 10. So mm -hmm. I don't know in hindsight how in the world I did the initial version of Markdown in like the month before and two months after my son was born. I think it's because I got no sleep. And so it was just a way to... I think the I think it was actually like in hindsight it doesn't make any sense to me but I think it was like I was actually more productive because I had I, I had no sleep. Yeah, you knew you weren't going to sleep. Right. And but, so what are you going to do? You're right. going to work. But what I remember is that when when you guys launched Basecamp, I was really close to announcing Markdown, but I hadn't told a lot of people about it and you guys launched with textile support. Right. And I was like, "Oh, I should have told those guys." <laughs> Textile, wow, that was a bit of a disaster for us. You know, um, although it, it was good at the time because that's kind of, that's all there was. And then Markdown right. came out and 
Um, it was funny. I mean, it's funny back then. Like, there wasn't really WYSIWYG. Uh, I mean, there was some really early stuff, but it was pretty terrible just because the browsers weren't really capable of doing this stuff. And so, but what, what we regretted ultimately was, um, you know, the transition away from, from textile when we, when we cut that off, moving that over or t- allowing all those messages that have been written to be rendered in another thing was just a huge, a huge nightmare. That was, that was a mess. Anyway. Yeah, ancient history but it does it feels like a long time ago yeah it really but i does. do remember now that you say that i remember that it was like you guys came first and it but it was really close and i thought oh i should have told them that maybe I, maybe they could have uh i remember that now too yeah uh, boy, i mean i i don't know what we would have done i probably would have i mean markdown so much more elegant than, than mm. textile ever was so i i, I would if, if we were up against in that moment again and there was two things available, I'm almost certain we'd go with Markdown. Yeah, but it w- I would have needed to be a couple months ahead of schedule just to, yeah. yeah. But anyway. Oh, well. Yeah. Oh, well. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Yeah. Um, so what are the products that you guys are are looking for a new home for? Yeah. So just to give some background there, it was really important to us that uh, when we made this announcement – that we're very clear about a couple other things. And one is, you know, we have some other very successful products. We have Campfire, we have High Rise, we have Backpack, we have a few other things. Backpack is a product that we we kind of retired, although our definition of retired is a little bit different, so I'll explain that in a second. But a few years ago, we decided no longer to sell Backpack. We wouldn't sell it anymore. But anyone who was using it can continue to use it. So we have, we've made a commitment to our customers and to ourselves that we will support our products until the end of the internet is kind of how we think about it here. As long as we're in business, we will support products that are under our name, even if we no longer develop them, but we will keep them up. We'll provide customer service on them. We'll do all the security patches we need to. We'll care about performance and stuff. We won't add new features. They'll be more in maintenance mode. So we did this with with Backpack a few years ago. And now it's time to consider what to do with with Campfire and High Rise. Um, and again, same thing. We don't want to let any customers down or, or, or leave them hanging. So we're looking for new homes for these products um, at companies that would really want to run these products and not absorb them into some existing product. We want them to, to, to live on on their own. Um, but if for whatever reason we simply cannot find the right fit, um, we've committed to main, maintaining those products and making sure they're still available for as long as we're still in business, which is hopefully decades from now. So that's that's sort of the way we're, we're handling this so customers don't get screwed because it's not their fault that we're making this decision and we don't want them to uh, to be left out. Yeah. And Campfire is just like, uh, basically, it's it's like a group chat. Group chat, yeah. With- Very simple. Came out in 2006. Um, and uh, it's basically just, just chat rooms for, for business. Right. And yeah. and part of that is, um, oh, I guess we can touch on that in a bit. But you guys are big, you know. You've literally written the book on it, uh, remote working. Yeah, and it is sort of, you know, that's it's that's where the name comes from. It's kind of obvious, like sitting around a virtual campfire. Yeah, it's a way for remote teams to stay in touch throughout the day. Remote teams and and local teams. I think it depends on the kind of company you are. I mean, th- these chat these chat products. There's a lot of them out there today. Uh, and they all relatively, you know, do basically the same thing. There's different takes on it and stuff. But for the most part, um, they're really popular with development teams, uh, software developers who are really working on stuff all the time, a lot of back and forth. Um, even people who are, are working nearby each other, though. Like, for example, in our office in Chicago, most of our comp- – we have a room in, in our campfire account called Chicago Talk where we talk about 
the only people who are in the room are people from Chicago, and, and there's someone from Ann Arbor who's in it too, close enough. Um, and, uh, and we talk about local stuff. Even though we're all sitting in the same office, we use Campfire for that because it's actually a better way to have these kind of discussions rather than interrupting each other out loud all the time. Right. We can just kind of chime in in this room and drop some interesting links in and drop some pictures in and stuff when it's appropriate. So it's good for any, any kind of team that needs to work together, wants to communicate sort of in real time without bothering each other. Right. And, and maybe to go back again to like 1999, in those days, the only thing, everything like that was, well, let's set up a mailing list. Let's set up, everything was <laughs> squeezed into email and it would be, well, here's our company mailing list. And then you'd set up a separate mailing list for a Chicago company. Yeah. And then all of a sudden your email has uh, 13 different inboxes. Right. <laughs> and if you were, you know, that was a problem. And so that was one of the reasons we built this. Also, if you were really on top of things, you might have an IRC, you know, room set up, but that's highly technical and wasn't right. really appropriate for most companies. So there's really kind of no way to, to do this. You could use instant messaging and have group instant messages, which was fine, but they weren't persistent. Right. Um, and so there's nowhere to go to have a conversation. You had to be invited to conversations all the time, and that was con- kind of complicated. So, yeah, that's where the uh, the idea for Campfire came up. All right. And then High Rise is, um, what what do you, what's that, uh, the phrase? Um uh, CRM, CRM. Yeah, High Rise is 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 a, actually our second most popular product behind Basecamp, and is a, it's a huge product and a very successful business in its own right. Um, it's basically a way to keep track of the people you talk to, what you talk to them about, and when you need to follow up with them next. So it's 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 CRM technically, which is customer relationship management, but it's more about keeping track of conversations with people you you deal with. And we built it because at the time we were getting popular with the press. The press was emailing us a lot, asking us questions, doing interviews. And I just started losing track of who I'd talked to. I forgot, like, have I talked to this person before? Who did I, who have I pitched? Where are we in the process of this, this story? And I was just using my, you know, using email, which is pretty much what everyone does to, to try and kind of track this stuff. And pretty quickly you, you lose, you lose track of it all. And so we built high rise to keep track of all the conversations we were having with the, with the media. And also at the time, we were getting a lot of inquiries from uh, venture capital firms, and we needed a place to keep track of that stuff too. And so that's sort of how how High Rise came to be, and you know, it's morphed into a tool that a lot of salespeople use, small small scale. You know, it's not trying to be Salesforce. It's it's a much simpler tool for much smaller sales teams. Yeah, well, that's exactly where I was going with that, which is that to me, it it's it was a very natural successor to Basecamp because Basecamp, in a nut, is project management and project management traditionally is a notoriously the the big names in project management software are notoriously big monolithic complicated systems yeah i mean really really big stuff and just opaque when you just sit down in front of and and basecamp is it was it just came out of the gate as a sort of Let's forget. Let's not try to simplify the the existing monolithic idea of project management software. Let's throw it all away. Start with a blank piece of paper and just build something simple from the start. And yeah, that's I think High Rise was the same way with uh, CRM. It, it was, and that's how we try to approach everything. I mean, for for project management, you know, all the tools that existed at the time were pretty much like Microsoft Project, which was Gantt charts and project schedules and more of a broadcast tool. Um, and what we needed wasn't that. We needed just a way to communicate with with each other 
share designs, share ideas, get feedback from clients, that kind of stuff. And so that wasn't what project management was about at the time. Um, we, we saw it differently. We saw it as communication, not control. And so we, we made a communications platform basically for that. And, and high rise was similar. There's, there's a lot of, I mean, there's now there's even more of course, but there was some big time CRM type, type tools out there. Um, and, you know, they were just overkill for keeping track of simple conversations between people that, that you needed in business. It wasn't about sales pipelines and it wasn't about, you know, e- extensive tracking of salespeople and how they're performing. It was just like, I need to keep track of conversations in a way that makes sense to me and not have them just like tagged in inboxes where I can't really follow things. And then if I'm having a conversation and I need to hand it over to, to David or someone else at the company... Like you can't do that in email. You're you're kind of screwed at that moment. You have to f- maybe forward a huge thread of things. It's just a total mess. So, um, high rise was kind of shared uh, shared communication, shared history of communication, and it just made a lot of sense for us to go in that direction. Yeah, and I think it was they're both really perfectly timed for the. You know, again, we're talking about you know ten fifteen years here, but it's uh, so much has changed in the last ten fifteen years in terms of not just the way we use software where everything is internet connected and it's either in a web browser or it's somehow talking HTTP as it syncs to your phone or tablet or whatever. But, but just the way that, I mean, everybody talks about bring your own devices to work and, and Mm -hmm. this movement, but there's really a lot of almost choose your own software, you know, where, and, and we're, you know, people are working in smaller teams and a lot of people are broken off and you just pick what you want to use and use it. And that's, in, I think, stark contrast to like when I was in college in the 90s and it seemed like companies, everything was the enterprise, quote unquote. And everything went through, you know, people didn't just buy software or get demos and then sign up. They they went through procurement and the people picking the software weren't the people using it. And it's just, that was just how it was done. And I think that's how you everything got into these uh situations where software was so inordinately complex because it was sold, you know, based on how many features it had. Totally. And that, that's, that's it. That's, it's as simple as that, I think, is that the, and you, you said it, which is that the people who were buying the software back then weren't the people who were using it. So their, their, their rules and reasons for buying something didn't line up with the people who needed it. So a lot of people who were buying it were, were, you know, if you're comparing three or four things, you know, you're going to get the one with the longer list of things. You know, because like, let's say it costs about the same. Well, why not get more stuff? Well, if that's 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 the criteria that you'd use if you're purchasing something for somebody else. But if you're purchasing something for for yourself, you're going to look at things like simplicity, ease of use, clarity. Does this make sense? Is it fast? Is it functional in a way that it makes sense to me? Is it flexible? Like those are the things that matter. And and in enterprise software, there's a huge disconnect there. Tools like Basecamp, um, you know, our products are used in. Pretty much every every major company, every big huge company, Fortune 500, not every single one, but most of them. But they're used by small teams inside these companies, and they've they've kind of done an end around in that they're not really permitted in some cases to use them, uh, but they do because they work. And and I love those kind of rogue moves in companies because people just want something that works, and they'll put you know they'll take fifty bucks a month out of their own pocket to pay for Basecamp or twenty bucks a month, you know, depending on the tiers. Uh, just so they could have something that works because the, the software that's been forced on them does not work. And so we have a lot of customers in a lot of places um, and we don't have any salespeople, but yet, you know, huge airlines use our products and, and huge universities and huge governments and huge, you know, big, big places that normally would have to be sold something. Um, 
and frankly, we could probably never sell Basecamp into an airline. Like that's not what we would ever want to do. But I love that the marketing department might be using it, or the design department might be using it, or the or the mark you know the advertising group in the, in the company might be using it. That's that's great, and that happens all the time. Right. I mean, and that's I, I, part of it too. Comes from your guys background before you became a software company where you guys were doing client services. You guys, you know, you people would hire 37 signals to do their website. Uh, and so you guys have, it's not just that you have the products. You guys have always had to me, very interesting product websites that Basecamp. you go to basecamp.com, it sells itself. I mean, or at least it's supposed to. And like you say, if you just said you guys don't even have any salespeople, it must. Yeah. It's interesting. It's changed over the years. So when we first launched Basecamp, I mean, it was a new idea. So we really had to explain the product uh, in a way. But but lately, you know, almost all of our business comes from word of mouth. Um, and, and we know that because customers tell us this and we can tell we don't do any AdWords spend. We're not into SEO. And pe- meanwhile, 6,000 people a week, 6,000 companies, I should say, a week are signing up for Basecamp. 6,000 every single week. We don't do any SEO, don't do any AdWords, don't have a marketing budget, don't buy ads anywhere else. We don't have salespeople. So this is a word of mouth thing. And um, when, when, when word of mouth, you know, when people come to Basecamp.com today, we're assuming that they've kind of heard of Basecamp at some, at some point. Someone told them about it, hey, you got to check this out, or they've used it somewhere else at another company that they were working with or working for, or maybe they'd used it at their previous job and now they're at a new job and they want to bring Basecamp into the new place. Um, so we've changed our, our messaging. It's, it's actually a lot less. We just launched this new site last week, this sort of fun kind of throwback site, which we can talk about in a little bit if you're curious. But um, the site's really now more about, you know, hey, we've been around for a long time. You've probably heard of us. Um, lots of companies just for lots of different things. Here's some of those things. But it's less about the tools. It's less about like we have to-do lists and we have a scheduler and we have a calendar and we have messages. It's not about the tools so much anymore. It's more about what's the outcome? You know, what are you going to get out of this product? How many other people are using it? Do I feel comfortable with it because other people have used it? You know, oh, you've heard about it from someone else, you're in the right place, that kind of stuff. So we've sort of shifted a little bit that way. But we've always been very heavy on on the message and writing. And uh, our, our sites have always had more words than everybody else's. But we, we think that, um, uh, you know, the writing's tight and, and, and concise. And we, we think that people, you know, there's, and you're a writer, you, you, you get this, a lot of people will keep saying they continue to say today that people don't read on the web. Well, the thing is, is they don't read bad shit on the web. I mean, <laughs> they don't read bad shit anywhere. You know, if you write a bad book, it's not going to get read. If you write a bad magazine article, it's not going to get read. So I believe people are happy to read good things. And so we work really hard on the copy and we've pushed back on this sort of, this. there's an evolution of web design lately, which is, it's very, very slick. It's a lot of like Big, huge pictures, um, backgrounds that are sliding past, you know, parallax effects sliding past one another, you know, very little text, more more imagery. And, and I'm, I just want to push back on that. And that's what the, our new site does, because um, I think I don't think it's very um, comfortable for people to, to run into sites like that. I think people are more comfortable in a sort of a, more of a cozy website where it's a little bit more obvious that they, they, they get the feeling that they know the people behind it compared to um, seeing that something was designed in a in a fashion sort of way. So I don't know, I'm kind of going off track here, but, no, but that's the idea. And that's how we've always been. No, and, and uh, you know, you and I share very similar views on that. But marketing, uh, uh, communication-wise, the, the, 
the thing I believe in, you guys always have too, is is a sort of no bullshit tone to the prose. So right. you can write a ton. You could write, like you said, way more text than than an expert might recommend for a product page. But as long as every single bit of it is carefully written, not just not just you have a lot of words because you didn't edit, but you have a lot of words even though you did edit, and every word serves a purpose, and it's just totally honest. Just be radically honest with the the customer or potential customer. It, it can totally work, and yeah. I think it that the the it's like you said, it's reassuring. It sounds like these are real people talking to me. Totally, and that that's how we've tried to write for for as long as I can remember, which is. I want to write like I speak. You know, I want to write when someone reads what I've written, I would imagine myself telling them this thing in person. And if I can't imagine that, then I pull back and, and the bullshit meter goes off and goes, I would never say this in person. I would never speak this way in person. I would never describe the product this way in person. And I think if you go to a lot of websites today um, and you read the text, uh, you know, you, you'd go, they would never talk to me like this if I was sitting next to them or no one actually speaks this way. Uh, I think a lot of marketing copy is 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 almost written in a separate. It's, it's in a different language. It's not even in English. It's 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 not conversational. It's very um, surface level, shallow. Uh, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's just it's another language that people don't actually speak. Um, and so I want to make sure that 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 our sites are written in a language that people understand, which is just plain English. Uh, very, very upfront and candid about everything, and, and honest and, and and friendly, and 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 using some liberties to to say things that people that, that corporate websites might not normally say. Right. I, to me, when I encounter it as a user slash customer, it's not that I disbelieve it. It's not that I think I'm being lied to, and what they're saying here isn't true. But it's that it it puts up like a defensive shield in front of me, though, where. I'm thinking that way. Like I'm, I'm just, uh, it's, it's sort of a exaggerated analogy, but a little bit like when you, you hear a deal that's too good to be true. Like if you're, mm-hmm. you know, like, a, I can't remember that, seeing it in real life, but it, you know, like if you saw a, a, a guy showing three card Monty on the street corner and it looks so easy, I think, and I think most people with any common sense think, well, there's got to be a catch. You're going to get ripped off, right? And you yeah. might watch the game a little bit, but I'm not going to put my $5 up because I think you know, there's got to be a catch. When I encounter marketing ease like that on a web page, I, I feel like I'm in the presence of a three-card Monty dealer. I agree. And, and that's a terrible, in my opinion, unless you're a three-card Monty dealer. That's a bad way to treat customers. You know, it's, It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't feel like us. Um, so yeah, anyway, I, I think that, um, for me, writing has always been a, a, a fundamental part of web design or design in general. In fact, I'm, I've always been a believer that the words are more important than, than, than the pixels, you know, that, 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 um, that the best design is the best writing and writing is the best design. And I, I've always said that if you're going to sit around and redesign, if you're going to spend money to redesign a website, you're better off rewriting it, keeping the existing design, but rewriting it than actually redesigning it. Um, with the same content, so I, I think that that's really ultimately what's what's most important when when you communicate, which is you know what are you saying, what what does it say, and so anyway, that's something we we thought a lot about with the new site and the new and especially since the new site is not just representing our product anymore, but it's also representing us as a company. Um, 
and uh, and it's it's one it's sort of one voice now. It's not a corporate thing over here and a product thing over here. It's one thing, one site. All right, let me take a break and thank our first sponsor, and it's our our good friends at Lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com. Lynda.com has over two thousand high quality and engaging video courses taught by industry experts. New courses are added daily. Now you hear, wow, two thousand videos. It's probably something like YouTube. All sorts of crap. The reason they have 2,000 videos is is not because they have all sorts of crap. It's because they've been around for a long time and they've gotten really big and they have a lot of experts and there's a lot of areas they cover. But they really cultivate high-quality material. They have – here's the stuff that might interest listeners of this show. They've got a bunch of iOS developer courses. Uh, they have Unix for Mac OS X users. So anybody out there who's ever thought, hey – I really like to get to know you know the stuff that you can do in terminal on Mac OS X better. They have courses for that. Uh, Objective C, uh, iOS seven SDK, new features, everything from getting started to like what's the latest stuff. Web development. They have stuff for Perl. They have stuff for ASP. They have PHP, JavaScript, um, just about any language you can think of for web development. They have courses that can help you learn it. Creative Cloud, what if you're less of a coder, a little more of a designer? Photoshop CC, InDesign CC, you name it, they have material for it. After Effects, Premiere Pro, you name it. They even have stuff, they have photography, uh, podcasting, videography, an incredible selection of material. That's one of the reasons they have so many things to choose from is that they cover such a broad range of stuff. Really high-quality material, really high-quality video production. Top-notch stuff. Here's the best part. You don't have to take my word for it. I've got a special deal just for listeners of the show. Go to lynda.com, that's L-Y-N-D-A.com, slash The Talk Show, and you can get a seven-day free trial and watch as many of these videos as you want and see for yourself how good they are. So if there's anything like that that you're looking to learn, uh, check that out, and uh, you'll thank me for it. Lynda.com slash the talk show. Uh, so let me ask you this. I mentioned this before. So you guys are making this big change to go to base camp. Successful as you're, you know, with a successful business. Why? Why do you? I and and to me, it epitomizes what you and David, in particular, have have a to me an uncanny knack for which is is always questioning what you're doing and and why not just when you're in trouble uh but even when things are going smoothly is i hope that, so do you have to force <laughs> yourself to do that or do you feel like that just comes naturally to you guys um i think i think when things are going well you you have to at some level force yourself to 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 stop and 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 look around because it's really easy to get lazy when things are going well and just to think that whatever decisions you made in the past are the right ones and just let's keep riding this. So I th- I think you know, I think when things go bad, it's natural to look at what's going on and reconsider, but when things go well, it's really hard to do that. So um you know, we don't we don't consciously do this like on a, every year or anything like that, but occasionally, you know, I, I I get an itch and I just don't feel like we're thinking hard enough or questioning things hard enough, and I'll, I'll typically be the one to bring this sort of stuff up. And you know, it's I think it's it's always been in me to be a bit 
um, uncomfortable after I've been comfortable for a while. And, and so that's how that's how this stuff happens. And I also think it's it you know all this comes back to to the way we've set our company up and that we're we're a self-funded company, so we're on our own time frame. We don't have to do things because some investors telling us to do it or the public markets are telling us to do it. So we can take our time. We can be in it for the long run. And, and when you're when you're doing that, um, you know, companies typically don't stick around for a long, long time unless they're willing to to make some changes when things when things change. And um, you know, hopefully, if you're doing well, you can you can preempt the moments um, that would normally force you to make changes if you if you make them too late. You know, I, th- I think I think that. I typically get an itch and, you know, it comes up different times. Um, I, when we launched the new version of Basecamp in 2012, we, we'd been running the old version of Basecamp, which is now called Basecamp Classic, for eight years. And it was doing really well and things were great. And there's really no reason to, to change except that, like, I found that we weren't using Basecamp as much anymore ourselves. We were using other things, Campfire and some other stuff. And, and, I, and I started to well, that's a problem. Like, why aren't we using what we're making anymore? That's, that's not good. I mean that was sort of the impetus to to re, to question um, to question that. So sometimes it's very obvious, um, and other times you just got to get ahead of, ahead of it before it's too late to make a change. It's like a canary in a coal mine if you're not using your own product. Yeah, I, I, you know we've always built things that we need and that we use, um, and we were still using Basecamp, but we weren't using it as much because the way we we we'd worked had changed. The way we work has has changed. And uh, the classic version was a little bit more, um, po- it pointed a little bit back towards the days when we were doing client work, which we were no longer doing. We weren't doing client work anymore. We were, we were making software. And so our, our sort of our needs have changed and the way we worked had changed. And, um, and that's one of the reasons I think we started not using Basecamp as much as we had. And we said, that's a problem. And in this new version, we were, we're crazy users. We're incredibly heavy users of Basecamp. Probably no one's a heavier user than us. Um, of the new version, and that's because we built it based on what we need today. And, and so th- those are those kind of moments where things like that come up. And it probably made for the new base camp to be a broader platform because it's still, you guys still clearly had in mind your roots as a client services company. And I, I mean, I know firsthand that a lot of, you know, the people, you know, my friends who still do client services, uh, a ton of them, but probably a majority do the client relationships through Basecamp. You know, that the, the projects are, you know, it's still, the new Basecamp is still a great product for client services. Uh, yeah. And actually it's, it's even better. Um, the, the old Basecamp had some, some, or Basecamp classic had, had some tricky things that you had to set up in order for someone to be a client. There was this idea of the client firm split, which was sometimes a little bit, complicated because if you had three people involved, like you had an external contractor and a firm and a client, it's like, who was the contractor? Were they the client or the firm? And there was some, it was pretty rigid actually. And, and the new version of Basecamp is a lot looser in that way and that you can have multiple parties involved in the same project. You can also designate certain people as the client and you can decide that I don't want to show the client certain things in the project. It's a lot clearer actually than the old version, but, um, but yeah, that's uh, client services firms, design firms, uh, big part of our customer base. And so we're very, very aware of what they need and, and how they're using the product. And and we still occasionally have client-like arrangements. Like, for example, when we were publishing our, our book, the, 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 um, you know, the, the publishing house, uh, Random House or Crown, is, was, was actually the client. So we kind of used that feature 
there too. But yeah, the, the new version of Basecamp um, tools functionality is similar, but the approaches are different. The ideas are different. The implementation is very different. The interface is very, very different. Um, and uh, but but fundamentally, projects and people working together need need a, similar tools, regardless of whether or not it's ten years ago or, or today. Like. They need a way to communicate. They need a way to keep track of the work that has to be done. They need a way to keep track of schedules. They need a way to, sh- a way to share files and give feedback. That's all basic functionality um, uh, that people need, but you can implement that in different ways. So one of the other things, and you've already mentioned it, that you guys when you in 2012, so about two years ago, launched the new base camp. And it really is. It, it is a lot more than a, a 1.0 to 2.0 change. You guys really kind of started over. And it had all the features of the old Basecamp, but organized very differently. And you guys kept Basecamp classic because it's different enough that there might be some people who really are, I'm presuming that they're just either, either it's their personality and they just don't want a big change or they just have a process that's rooted in the old Basecamp that it would be a big shakeup for them to move. And the thing that's interesting to me is that you guys have a reputation and, you know, you guys do big changes, like changing the name of the company from 37 Signals to Basecamp and shedding all the other products. Um, and, and you guys sort of have a reputation rhetorically as flamethrowers, you know, that you'll, you'll go out there and, and if you're going to encourage people to work remotely, you're going to do it in a bold way, mm-hmm. right? But... You guys also do things that a very few software developers do, which is to keep do something like keep Basecamp Classic around, and you know, like you said, until the end of the internet, until or or the end of the company, you're going to keep it working and keep software or security updates and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what? Where does that come from? It, you know. It's 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 so fundamental to us because um, you know what's different about our products is that they're services too, and and a lot of companies have come to rely on these services. They've trained their staff, they've trained their clients, they have ongoing long term projects, um, and and for us to disrupt their business because we want to change something um, that doesn't sit well with us. It's not fair to them, and um, we've always been a company that's been funded by our customers. So, you know, we, we, we look out for them. And in this case, um, we saw no reason why we should force change in anybody. I mean, th- there's a thing, you know, people always say, like, uh, people don't like change. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I think people love change if, if it's change they're ready for and if they want to make it themselves. But I don't think people like forced change. They certainly don't like it when someone forces them to change, especially when you're looking at a product like Basecamp, which is not just used by a single person. You know, like, for example, you upgrade your phone from iOS 6 to iOS 7. That pretty much just affects you. Um, but if you if you move from Basecamp Classic to the new Basecamp or you're forced to, for example, that might affect 40 different people at your company and seven of your clients, you know, who are paying, your clients are paying you, you know, maybe they're, they're paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, like to, to, to uproot them, for us to force you to uproot them and make their lives more difficult is going to have a negative impact on your own business and ultimately on ours. It doesn't make any sense. So we're very careful about that and very thoughtful about that. And a large number of our customers continue to use Classic, and and we will never, ever ask them to, to change. They're free to change. We have a migration path if they choose to change. Some customers use the old version with older clients and the new version with newer clients. There's different combinations of things. But um, we just decided fundamentally right from the beginning that 
this wasn't going to be a forced transition for anybody because it's just simply too disruptive for um, for clients who've, who've chosen a certain way of working. And, uh, and and that's how we want to be with, with everything that we do. Uh, and there's a cost to that, you know. Uh, obviously, you have to maintain two separate code bases and whatnot. But there's also some 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 limits. You know, we we don't we don't improve classic in fundamental ways anymore. Classic is sort of as is. We maintain it. We'll fix bugs if they pop up. We'll handle security updates. Um, but it's kind of a maintenance. Uh, it's in maintenance mode. Um, but performance is, is still at the same level of BCX in terms of uptime and all that stuff and infrastructure. All that stuff gets upgraded along with all of our other upgrades when we add new hardware, that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's, it you know, benefits from that as well. But fundamentally, it's it's a product that exists, and if you like it, you can keep using it, and we'll never ask you to leave. And that's just, I don't know, I think when you, when you, when, when, when you sell something to somebody, you know, we feel there's a responsibility for us to maintain that contract with them, that they sign up for this thing, and they expect it to be around, and we should, we should hold up our side of the contract, which is different um, if you're a company that doesn't sell things. If you just give stuff away for free, um, you don't feel an obligation to anybody because no one has an obligation to you. Like no one's, no one's invest, no one's betting on you in a big way. No one's investing their time and their process to really, you know, sink in and, and really believe in this thing because they're just getting this thing for free and they just don't care about it so much. So if we were just giving stuff away for free, it'd be a lot easier for us to say, screw them. But that's, that's not what we do. And that's not how we want to act. I, it, it like you said, there's definitely a cost to that sort of strategy. But no matter what, there's a cost because what were your other options? Your other options would have been to go with the new platform and a you know have like a set like a three month or six month schedule to shutter the old one and risk alienating a lot of customers, which is a cost. Or you could have just kept building on the old one and you would have never gotten it to be to satisfy that itch that you're saying you saw we're like you know what this isn't good enough for today anymore and if you had just iterated on the old platform you wouldn't have gotten there that's right we thought about that that was an option early on which was you know do we and in fact that that's kind of how this whole thing started um not the name change but the the new version of Basecamp a couple years ago is that we had some new ideas on things we wanted to speed up specifically in in, in, uh, in in Basecamp, and we looked at what it would take to do that. And structurally, um, you know, Basecamp Classic was on an older code base; um, it wasn't as up to speed uh, with a variety of things that we were doing at the time, interface ideas that we had, whatnot. And and retrofitting these new ideas into the old product was going to create sort of a a, a massive compromise. Uh, and that that wasn't the way forward. We didn't think a compromise was the way forward. Um, so we just decided that look, there's there's I mean at the time, of course, I mean it was a big risk to do a new version of Basecamp. We had no idea what was going to happen. But at the time, 100% of our customers were using Basecamp Classic, and um, you know we just felt like let's let's not rock the boat for them. They're happy already, um, and. But let's spend some time to make sure that with this new version that we do, which we can, st- which we actually wrote from rewrote from scratch, which is something we said was always a bad idea. <laughs> um, David, David's always been really, really big on this, which is rewrites are a terrible idea most of the time. Um, but it turns out they're terrible if you're just trying to rewrite the, the, the back end just to 
you know, but not have have no customer facing changes. You just want to change tech or tech stack or something that can be really bad. But if you have fundamentally different ideas about how to implement something moving forward, it, it's actually faster. It was faster for us to to build a new version from scratch, and we got all sorts of other things for free because we did that, and we got to reconsider all sorts of things along the way. Um, but yeah, those are the options. The option was to to modify the existing version in a way that we never thought we could really get it f- far enough along where we wanted it to be. So that was just not going to happen. The other option was to to force migration at a certain point, which we thought would be really disruptive in, in, in a bad way uh, and harmful. And we'd probably end up with a lot of customers who loved us who all of a sudden hated us, which would be the, the worst possible scenario. And so even though it was still a hard decision to make a whole new version of Basecamp, it, it became the obvious decision after weighing all the options. And then the other option was, you know, not the other option, but, you know, how, how, mu- how, how easy do we want to make it? be to move from classic to the new version. So we spent a lot of time on the migration paths. Um, and what, what was interesting about that experience was that we actually made it too easy. And because we made it too easy to move from classic to the new one, a lot of people who tried the new one, who loved classic, didn't like the new one because they're so used to the old one. And we, so we made it almost too easy for them to try it. And then they sort of recoiled because it was so vastly different that they've never given it another chance. They wanted to go back or something. They wanted to go back, and they could because the, the migration was non-destructive. So mm. we actually made a copy of the data moving forward. We didn't, we didn't move any data. Um, so they, they can continue to use what they, what they had. But looking back on it now, what I think we would have done or what we would do differently if we did this again was not to make it so easy, in fact, but to, to, um, to make it a little bit harder to move so people didn't sort of out of curiosity try the new thing when they were perfectly happy with the old thing. We didn't introduce that way. We wouldn't have introduced some extra anxiety that people had when they saw the new one and didn't do exactly the same things as the old one. And people get nervous about that. So I, I think we learned a, we learned a great lesson there, um, which is don't always make things easier. In some right. cases, you want to add an extra step, or you want to make things harder. You want to make people think about things a little bit more before they do them. Yeah, and that's a perfect example of of what I, I've always admired about you guys is that it, I guess the phrase is you know. Isn't it? Isn't that one of the slogans of Rails as a framework that it's opinionated software? Yes, and that you guys are definitely opinionated people, but it's not a, being opinionated, strongly opinionated, doesn't necessarily mean. Even though I think a lot of people jump to the conclusion that it means that you always think you know better than everybody else, our way or the highway. And you guys do have an incredible amount of attention that you pay to your customers. And and like a, a um, like a respect for the customer. Yeah, I think you have to have that. I mean, if, if you have to have that, if you're a company like us, which is funded by our customers, um, we we work for them. Our job is to help them do their job better. Like that's what we're here for. So obviously, we want to make things that we're happy with and we're proud of. But but our customers pay us, and we have to make sure that they're really really happy with what we're doing, and we're we have to be thoughtful about what it's like to be them. Um, Software companies sometimes can think a lot about themselves because they think a lot about technology and they think a lot about advances and they think a lot about design and, and they're talking about how you know how beautiful things are and how streamlined things are and all these things. But a lot of that stuff doesn't really matter to people who are just in the trenches doing the work. Um, what what they want to know, what they want is not to be um, forced into major changes in the middle of a project. I mean, think about like think about how disruptive it would be if you're if you're a customer of Basecamp. And you're in the middle of a new project with a client. Maybe it's your first 
project with this client. Maybe it's an old time client. Who knows? Um, and it's a seventh month project. And all of a sudden in month, in month five, and you've got all these assets in Basecamp. And then in month five, we, the company says, hey, you can't use this anymore. You got to learn this new thing. Like that is so disruptive to them. It'd be terrible business for us to do that. But it'd be easy for us to do that and to say, no, this is the way it is. You got you to gotta move. Like, of course you want this better version of Basecamp. Why wouldn't you want the better version of Basecamp? It's so much better. But it doesn't matter if it's so much better because they're not, those aren't the qualities that they're concerned about. They're concerned about longevity. They're concerned about consistency. They're concerned about um, maintaining order. They're concerned about looking organized to cut to clients. You know, th- they don't want to foist or force big changes on their clients. So it's, these are the things that matter to them. Continuity is very important to them, and that, that's the kind of stuff. So you got to think about that stuff, too. It's not just about the software and what's better. Better is not um, – I've been meaning to write about this. Maybe this will spur me on to write about it. But better is not a quality that matters to a lot of people um, be, it, because time is, an, time is a factor as well. Better might matter eight months from now to somebody, but right now, better is not what they want. They want continuity right now. You know, because people are at different points in, in the relationship with a client or project. So anyway, I'm rambling well, a bit. Well, it's almost like, you know, it's the way that better can mean so many different things, where maybe objectively this new version is better software than the old version. But what's better for the customer is the lack of an interruption. Totally. Right. And if, if you just think about, you know, the, our customers, Basecamp is an important part of, of their work, but it's not what they do for a living. You know, Basecamp is not what they, they they service clients for a living. They deliver work to clients for a living. They take care of clients for a living. And to have us all of a sudden jump in the middle of them and their client and say, hey, you got to learn this new system right now, even though you've got a deadline next week, that would just be so arrogant of us to do that. And that would be a terrible move. So you have to be very thoughtful about that kind of stuff. Um, and you have to keep in mind that better is not what people are always looking for. Yeah. Um, Let me take a second break here and thank our second sponsor, and it's our good friends at Backblaze. Now, you know Backblaze. I've been talking about them for the last few weeks. Uh, Online backup for the Mac, $5 a month. It's a native app, unlimited, unthrottled. You have a, a big external hard drive. You can back that up. How do they do that? There's a good question I got asked on Twitter. How do you do that? How, how can it be that they uh, only charge $5 a month and have unlimited backup? It's, they actually have some blog posts. You can Google about it. But it's by, on their side, uh, they found a way to build storage really cheap. And another factor, uh, they don't have free users. You can get a free trial. You can try it out for two weeks, no charge, and you can see how it works. But long term, everybody's a paying customer. It works great. They've been around for a while now. Uh, they're founded by ex-Apple engineers. I always emphasize that because it really shows in the Mac software. You just install it. It's a little system preference panel. You set it up, and then it just goes. It just backs up everything, and you can uh, control how much of your bandwidth it uses. You can set it to be uh, to use as much as it can get for like the initial backup when you have a lot of stuff to push. And then you can dial that down, and it's never going to uh, use up all your Wi-Fi bandwidth just backing it up because you put a new movie on your on your hard disk or something like that. Uh, and it just works. They have an iOS app that allows you to access and share any of the files that you've backed up from your system. Uh, you can restore one file at a time or all of your files easily through their web restore. Uh, in the case of some kind of an emergency. You can do something even like uh, get your entire backup 
put onto a USB hard drive and they'll ship it to you. Uh, you do have to pay for that. That's not included for $5 a month, but it's it's something like $189 or something like that. And you can get your backup delivered to you if you're across the country, around the world, uh, in an emergency. Uh, or you could just download one file that you have on your backup anywhere you want. Uh, runs on Mavericks. There's no add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. You can try it for two weeks free. See that you like it, and then when you sign up, it's just $5 a month per computer after that. Uh, and the best part, totally automatic. Once you have it installed, uh, you sign up for the account, you never have to worry about it. You just know your stuff is backed up, which is really the only way a real backup can run. If you're only running backups manually, Murphy's Law says you're going to need it the most when you've gone the longest between initiating them. So go check them out. Here's how you can do it, and they'll know you came from the show. Go to www.backblaze.com slash daringfireball, and uh, they'll know you came from the show. So we've mentioned him a couple times. We've mentioned David. That's David Heinemeyer Hansen. Mm -hmm. uh, how long have you guys been working together? Since, uh, you know, gosh, I think it's 2000. One or two, um, pretty much you, the whole stretch. I mean, you've, thirty-seven signals existed for a few years before that. Yeah, since ninety-nine. I think I'm trying to remember. So David, David did the first version of Basecamp with me, but before that, I'd hired him to do another project for me, which was a web-based app to um, manage your book collection. And that was the first time that we worked together, and I think that was two thousand one at some point. Um, but he was originally a he was in school. Uh, he was a student at Copenhagen Business School, and so I only bought like 10 hours a week from him for, for quite a while. Um, and, and it wasn't until Basecamp launched that he actually became an employee and then eventually became a partner in the business. I remember, it is a, I, I just have to tell this story. I remember meeting him, and I think maybe we knew each other online, you know, just, you know, me writing during Fireball and him contributing to, to the Your Guys blog. Um, but we met in person in San Francisco at the web 2.0 summit in 2005, I think I'm almost sure it was when I was working at joint and we were demoing, we had some uh, web stuff to demo and we'd built it on rails. Uh, and David was there. I'm not quite sure what he was there, but you know, something rails related. I mean, rails was really, really, it was new, but it was really hot in 2005. Yeah. And uh, we're in San Francisco, and it, you know, is a real shit show. I mean, Web two, anything called Web two point. I mean, ninety ninety five percent of the people there were just full of shit. And so, like as naturally happens, a bunch of us who who you know, well, maybe we're full of shit in different ways, but we're, we were full of shit in a different way than a lot of the people who were there. We needed lunch, and uh, it was me and David, and I, we had a pretty big group. It was like maybe like ten of us. Um, but mostly, you know, like a lot of Rails engineers and people were working on Rails stuff. Uh, good group. We had a good lunch. We went to uh, Chevy's down on, uh, I forget what street it's on there. Yeah, I remember and don't, that. Uh, don't, <laughs> you know, I, and, and it, you know, not a great restaurant, but it was near the hotel where we were and we had to get back. And I'm not afraid to admit it. I've, I've eaten many meals over the years at San Francisco's <laughs> at that Chevy's. Uh, not, not embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But David and I, I remember we ordered, we both got the same thing. We got the fajitas. And uh, I don't know that David had ever uh, had fajitas before, but he, they sounded good to him. And I said, ah, they're good. You like it. You know, you get chicken and fried onions and 
peppers and you can mix guacamole in and all this stuff. And, and, uh, I'll never forget this. And then, you know, the food comes and it, as anybody who's eaten in a, like a Tex-Mex or Mexican chain restaurant like that knows when you get fajitas, you get like a hot sizzling platter with the meat and the, the vegetable, the grilled vegetables, and then a separate thing with the tortillas and then little things like here's the guacamole, here's the salsa, here's the cheese, and then you get an empty plate, and then you you make it yourself, right? And I'm I just my food came, I start making my thing, and David just sort of stared at it. And he goes, "Why, why, why do I have to do this?" <laughs> and I was, and I really was like, "What?" And then he just he just instantly he was just like, "I don't know anything about making a fajita." Presumably, the people in the kitchen here are professional chefs. Why, why am I expected to be the one to know the proportions that are going to be the best? Shouldn't they have done this for me? Yeah. And I instantly, re- I was like, he's right. It's it, what a stupid <laughs> thing that you have to make your you you put these things together on your own. He he, he says the same. <laughs> he says the same thing about burgers. Uh, he doesn't like construction kit food, is how he puts it. Right. Uh, I think I don't know if he's changed on that stance, but I remember him always talking about construction kit food, where he, you get a burger, you know, you know, it's kind of open face because you've got the bun and then you've got the lettuce, tomato, onion, like on the bun side, and you've got the the patty on the left with the bun under it. And he's like, "What am I? What am I supposed to do? Like, do I? Why, why would I make this decision?" And I think that that while it's sort of a silly anecdote, like it has a lot to do with how he sees things, which is, you know, um, uh, convention over configuration. He's, he that that was one of the right. fundamental tenets of Rails, which is it should just work out of the box. I, I've made some intelligent decisions for other people the way I think they should be made. If, you can go and change them if you want, but if you don't change them, everything works the way it's supposed to. And I think that that, that mentality uh, where, where he's like, why would you serve fajitas deconstructed or something? Like, What's the right. point? Um, makes its way into Rails. Right. He was like, yeah. I don't know what's going to taste good. And so, you know, like with Rails, you start a new Rails product. You don't have to set up all the folders yourself. You just type, I forget the exact command, but it's like Rails scaffold or something like yep. that. And you get the scaffold of an empty Rails project. And here, here's where you'll put your CSS files. And here's where you'll put your image files. Because we've already figured that this is a logical folder or directory setup. You don't have to worry about it. You can just start making the images and putting them in there and start making the style sheets and putting them in there. Uh, and I'll never, I just remember that. I just remember when he first started, I was like, what the hell is he talking about? And, he, and within 15 <laughs> seconds, I was like, yeah, this is, this is bogus. Why am I doing this? It, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things you don't question until someone from the outside comes in and questions it. And you're like, I never thought about how ridiculous that is, but you're absolutely right. But at the same time, like there's there's another there's another angle to it, which is, and I know we're we're getting a bit too deep on fajitas here, but there's another angle which is which is entertainment and and control. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I feel like um, we've actually made this mistake with our products over the years in some cases, where we've been a little bit too much about convention and. Um, we haven't given people a little bit of control over their environment, and people like to have a little bit of control over their environment in terms of you know what color should this be, or you know can I pop my logo in here, things like that. Um, and so I think I think you can you can take it to the extreme in, in the wrong direction as well. But anyway, there's obviously the happy medium is the right place. You don't want to overload people with tons of settings and tons of options because that's overwhelming and they don't really know what to do. But sometimes a little bit being too sort of um, stripped back in terms of customization is also 
not a great uh, experience. So it's, it's kind of a funny thing. But I think fajitas is like a great, it's a great metaphor for that because a fajita would be just fine if you delivered it to me, already folded up with everything in it. That'd be just, that'd be just great. But there's also some people who are like, I want a little bit more meat in mine than I want vegetables or I don't like peppers. And so you know, everyone right, has right. a little bit of flexibility. Or, who knows? Oh, you know, I don't like guacamole. I'm like sure guacamole. that's how it got started. I'm sure that it got started with, you know, somebody who was making them. And then there was, you know, the one guy was like, I want mine without guacamole. The other guy was like, I want, uh, I don't want any sour cream. Yeah. Uh, that's you know. how it goes. Yeah. And then, you know, there's all, in every culture, it seems like there's a hot sizzling plate option. <laughs> like, <laughs> like here in Chicago, Greek town, they have this stuff called saganaki, which is, flaming cheese and it comes out on a hot griddle and 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 the waiter um he, you know he, he he takes this 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 uh, i think it's orzo or something or whatever some some greek liquor and pours it over the top and lights it with a match and it lights on fire and it's like everyone gets that stuff because it's like this hot sizzling plate and if you go to an indian restaurant sometimes you get tandoori chicken it comes out in a hot sizzling plate this hot sizzling plate thing is like made its way across the world into every culture <laughs> So a little bit of showtime and food. I think that's a good thing. It always scares me a little bit. I don't it's kind of crazy. Like this hot cast iron disc is, is placed. You know, someone's carrying it with a bunch of other things. Like that could be incredibly tragic if, if, that, if that dropped. Um, it's, it's sort of playing with fire for real. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> let me just do the third sponsor. It's a good break right there. Yeah, and, sure. and I have, uh, it actually will lead me into the, the, the topic I was thinking we close the show out. Okay. Um, our third sponsor is our good friends at Hover. Hover, H-O-V-E-R, is the best way to buy and manage domain names. Uh, they have great search. You can search for keywords, and they'll show you the best available options and suggestions. Uh, everybody knows, really kind of hard to find good domain names. Uh, a lot of them are taken on a lot of the best top-level domains. Uh, their search will help you find them. They have a clean, simple website. You don't have to mess around with the complicated interface. Uh, and if you already have a domain name, they have something at another service that you've registered somewhere else that you're not happy with and you'd like to move. They have something that they call valet domain transfer. Sign up with Hover. Talk to their support staff. And their support staff will just take over and they will do all the stuff that needs to be done to get that domain transferred for you. Uh, Sounds too good to be true, but it really is, and it's just part of the support that they offer. And transferring a domain can be such a pain in the ass, especially if you don't do it regularly, because who's an expert on, on DNS? Not me. Uh, Hover Domain Transfer Valet Service is just great uh, at no additional cost. They just want your business as a customer. Famously, registering domains, domain registrars are are – Let's just face it, they're, they're scammy, scummy, unpleasant experience. Hover is the complete opposite. They've been around for a long time. They've been around since the 90s. Uh, and they're not in it for upsells. They're not in it for uh, a, a bunch of scammy ads at the end. There's no things that you get opted into uh, that you have to double check, you know, the check that the checkbox isn't some kind of weird double negative where you don't know if the check mark, you know, all sorts of scummy tricks like that that other registrars do. Hover is the complete opposite. It's like a breath of fresh air. Um, go check out their website and you'll see just how unlike any other registrar it looks like. They have all sorts of great uh, top level domains, um, .io, everything, all the new stuff. Um, 
They have email stuff if you want to host your email or forward your email. If you want to use Google Apps for your domain, they make that super easy. They're totally integrated on that. You can try 30 days of Google Apps on your domain for free just to see if you like it before you start paying. Where do you go to find out more? Easy, easy, easy. Go to hover.com, H-O-V-E-R.com slash talk show. And you uh, don't know you came from the show. My thanks to them. Uh, back to the show. So one of the things you guys did, you guys, uh, with the name change, you guys went to, uh, you had bat, you had basecamphq.com mm-hmm. from back in the day. And you finally, now you have basecamp.com. Was that hard? Well, it wasn't cheap. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, you know, it was one of those sort of six figure things we had to do. Well, we didn't have to do it, actually. I've never really felt like domains mattered that much. Um, That's what I was going to ask about. Yeah. You know, because it certainly didn't. You only changed last week. No, we changed about we changed when we launched the new the new base camp, but right. it wasn't it wasn't something that you really paid attention to because it wasn't didn't our notice. corporate site. Yeah, so I, I didn't notice till last week. So we wanted to get Basecamp way back in two thousand four. We couldn't get it, so we got Basecamp HQ, and we felt like who cares? It doesn't really matter. And I think domains are less and less relevant every day that goes by because Google is kind of the most important domain. If you just someone wants to know about Basecamp, they go to Google and type Basecamp, and we show up first. Like that's that's how most people get. To Basecamp, right? So, um, so I, I don't think domains matter that much, but it, it felt to me like I, it just was one of these irritants. I just wanted it gone. I, I wanted this HQ part gone, and and I, I really wanted just to be Basecamp.com. And, and um, so we talked to this this guy who owned it. Um, you know, look, we have the trademark. We could have gone after it legally in some way, but I, I look. Anytime a lawyer is involved is, is like an unfortunate, unhappy day for me. So I'd, I'd rather not bring lawyers into anything that I absolutely don't have to. And I would, I would rather spend more money not with a lawyer than, than spend money with a lawyer. So um, I like our lawyers, but I'd rather not have to bring them into things like this. So we n- negotiated with this guy for a while, and finally he was willing to, to, do, to do something. And, and uh, it was a pretty smooth transfer at that point. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm very happy we did it. I, I don't regret it for a moment. I think it's just it's better for us, especially now with our company being the same name as, as the product and everything's being base camp. Just like one little nagging irritant every night as you went to sleep. It, it was. Right. And, and like, you know, high rise is, is high rise HQ and campfires, campfirenow.com and backpack is backpackit.com. We never, ever had um, our own pure domain. It was just bugging me. And yeah. so, you know, 15 years, well, actually 13 years into it. I felt like okay, it's time to splurge. Thirteen years into it, like this is the same thing we did with our office. We we got a we, we you know we we've been as you mentioned at the start of the show we've been we've been sharing office space pretty much for our entire existence, and then ten years into it, eleven years into it, I'm like it's finally time to spend some money in an office. Um, so we did that, and then I feel like now it's finally time to spend some money in domain. So I don't ever recommend anybody spending a ton of money to get a domain name when they're starting a business. It seems like the the worst possible way to spend money. Um, it, it, you, that money should be precious to you and you should hold on to that and you're going to need it because things are going to be tough when you get started. But at a certain point, if you want to make a luxury spend, um, I think I think it's a nice thing to do if, if you can afford it. Yeah, I think especially with the like second bunch of top-level domains that have come into 
somewhat widespread use over the last few years, the country code ones, yeah. like .io. And, uh, so at, at QBranch with Vesper, we, we, we just got .coz, .co, yep. which I think has the – I think it's popular because it looks like .com, but it's widely used enough that it doesn't seem weird anymore. Uh, but we and we got them for you know just the regular fifteen bucks that it costs to register a new domain. Yeah, and look, you're not losing sales over that, right? You know, right. <laughs> it's it doesn't affect you guys at all. People are going to talk about Vesper because someone's used Vesper and they're going to look at it on the App Store and that's no, how. And I I know Vesper. from the analytics how people find it. They go to Google and they type Vesper app. Yeah, there you go. And that's where it goes. I mean, honestly, we could we 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 could have a domain name that doesn't even have Vesper in it, and it would it could just say like qbranch.co slash app, and people would get there because they go from Google. Yeah. So I, you know, it, it's just it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. But we we just we waited long enough, and it was tugging at yeah. me long enough that I just said, screw it, let's let's do it and get it done. All right. So the, the last thing I wanted to talk about was a story I linked to today uh, at Daring Fireball. It was a post by uh, John Bell. Mm-hmm. who used to work at Real Networks from 2000 to 2005. And, you know, I feel like this whole show, we're kind of, it's a, a trip down memory lane to like 2000 <laughs> to 2005. Mm-hmm. But like at the time, Real was, it's hard to imagine, you know, it's one of those things where like, man, times changed so fast. But at the time, Real Player, an awful lot of video on the web was Real Player. And you had to get this plug in and, you know, anybody who's old enough will remember, but it, if you're too young or you have a bad memory, it, it was this plugin you'd get for the Mac or Windows, and it would enable your web browser to play proprietary real player audio and video. And it was such a pain in the ass to get. And you'd go, you could get to their website, but their website, they made the link hard to find, and they had like a paid version they were trying to get you to have. And there was a free version, but it was really hard to find it was like enough that you you would think like when you're setting up a computer for your parents and you know you hadn't hadn't been there in a couple months um or you just bought yourself a new computer and you know wanted to you know get it installed you would i would think to myself like am i am i nuts am i nuts that i can't find this anymore uh and then once you had it it was it was just bad software and they were always upselling you on stuff um and John Bell, who was there, had a piece today, and he just said that it was, you know, inside the company, it was everybody knew, and that they would complain about it, and you know, and everybody think, well, can, what can we do about it, whatever, and and, but they were well aware of it. They knew that people didn't like their app or their, I don't know, the plugin, whatever you want to call it. They didn't like the website. They did. They resented the whole thing. Uh, but that one day his manager called him in and took him to a whiteboard and drew this graph. And it was like a straight line, then had a drop, and then the line went back up. And he goes, this is our revenue. Here, this drop, this is where we tried to get rid of these tactics. We tried to do what you're saying we should do. And when we did, the money dried up. Mm-hmm. So what do you think we should do? Should we do that and fire half of our employees or should you know should we keep going? And uh, I thought, you know, it's exactly what I've assumed – was the case, but I'd never heard it from anybody who'd worked there before. I just presumed they have to know, and I was like, they must somehow have painted themselves in a corner where this is the only way they're they're keeping the lights on. But I, to me, it's like there there is no good answer to that question at that point because you've already you've already painted yourself in the corner. There's no way out, and that the the trick is that you 
you should never, ever find yourself, even at the beginning, even I get the, in the early days, just one bad decision. You should never put your users or customers' interests in opposition to your company's interests. Yeah, I, lo- I love this post. I'm glad you linked it up. I, I looked at it briefly earlier, and then I was just kind of reading through it as you were ta- as you were talking. And to me, this is this is such a fundamental thing because when when you when you launch, and I remember real networks, and it's amazing how dominant they were, and then how quickly they went away. I mean, that was the only way to play audio and video basically on the web for many years, and then boom, gone. It just seemed like they were gone overnight, um, and I think when you start getting into really complicated, tricky business models like this, this is where you're going to find yourself. When, 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 you know, I think the closer you are to business 101, which is make something worth paying for and charge for it right from the bat, right from the start, just like every other business on the planet does, the closer you're going to be to, to having a really solid business where, where the right thing for you is the right thing for the customers. But the, the further away you are from business 101, which is what Real Networks was, which was like give stuff away for free, um, do some weird stuff, hide little links here, you know, like be annoying. Like the more you, the more you try and, or the more you go in that direction, um, the further apart your interests are going to be. And and this is something that I've always believed very strongly in, which is that business is not that complicated unless you make it complicated. Obviously, I'm not saying it's easy. It's it's hard to build a successful business, but fundamentally, it's not a complicated thing. You make something that is worth paying for, and you sell it to people, and they get more value out of it than you charge them for it. Like you're in a good position. As long as you can cover your costs, you could do that forever. You're you're in a really good spot, and that's that's what it should be about. And so here, you know, at, at Basecamp now, this is something we t- we talk about all the time. In fact, like selling potentially selling high rise or or campfire or 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 just deciding to sunset them in a way where only existing customers can use them that could have a, sh- a short-term impact on our revenue in a negative way we're, we're not going to have as much revenue coming in as we did but i've never been one who's been interested in maximizing revenue to the last you know percentage point i don't find that to be an enjoyable experience or an interesting one um I always try and figure out the right thing to do in a situation. And if that means a little bit less money, as long as my expenses are covered and everything's okay, I'm totally fine with that. Um, but when you start getting in this situation, which is like, do the right thing and we go out of business, you're screwed. Like you said, you're screwed. You've been screwed for a long time and there's very little uh, very little hope that you can get out of it unless you have a long enough time ahead of you, unless you have, you know, 10, 20 years to write that wrong. And most companies in that position don't because they're funded by investors. Right. And that's, that's why in the first place, they're able to give stuff away for free because they didn't have to make money. And when you don't have to make money up front, you're not going to be good at it when it's time to make money and then you're, you're screwed. So this is a great post. I think revenue maximum maximization as a, as a, uh, number one priority can often, uh, it leads to ruin, but it leads to ruin 10 years down the road, maybe 20 years down the road. But And then all of a sudden, nobody even remembers the decisions that led you there. But it just starts you down the path of making decisions that that pit you against your customers and users. Totally. And and this happens a lot in, in public companies um, and companies that are forced to go public because now you got to make quarterly numbers. And that's where all this stuff starts to happen again, so where it's I, like... I, I'll no. give you an example. Yeah. I I think, for example, I would be absolutely terrified to uh, be an executive at or to own stock in a cable company 
like let's say Comcast or Time Warner, because it's I hey Comcast makes tons of money and they're 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 headquartered here in Philly. They have a biggest skyscraper in the city and they just announced plans for the second biggest skyscraper in the city right next door. They uh, they bought NBC Universal a couple years ago. Tons of money. But I would I would be terrified to be part of that because it's so clear that people hate their cable companies and they resent the bills that they pay every month for it. And I don't know what the, you know, what the path is to uh, monthly cable subscribers collapsing or shriveling away or something like that. And maybe it won't happen. I don't know. But the fact is that so many people want it to happen to me is, is terrible. I, I feel like, and not, not terrible in any kind of moral sense, but terrible in those type of situations usually end up badly at some point. That there's that, and then there's also just the morale of of employees. Um, you know, w- when everybody hates your company, it's not a good place to go to work. And and, and when, when when the morale starts to dive, um, and people aren't motivated to to work because everyone hates them, and like when customers call up on the phone, they just you know yell at the customer service folks. Like, it's just not a pleasant place. And and, and great things don't come from those environments. You know, I, I don't think companies like that are capable over the long term of, of delivering great things when when their employees don't want to be there or are ashamed of being there or don't agree with with what they're doing so I, th- I think you know these are these are long-term things I mean Comcast I think Comcast made a really smart decision back back before uh, cable modems were out you know they were just basically a cable provider a TV cable TV provider and if they stuck with that they'd be dead but since they own the pipe into your house and since they provide the connectivity that drives all these other things, they probably have a much longer runway than they would have. So that was smart. But you're right. I mean, you get your cable bill. Like, I, In fact, I was just – I don't have cable TV at home. And I was thinking about getting it because I wanted to watch the Bulls. Um, and I can only watch some of the some of the games on local WGN TV here right. in Chicago. So. The only reason I want to get cable is for live sports. That is the only reason I want to get cable. And I have a feeling that I'm not alone there. I think a lot of people just get cable for live sports. And then, okay, so so I didn't, I, but I didn't do it because it was just, it seemed so expensive just to watch live sports for me, which is one team. So I didn't do it. And then I started looking into some other options, like what else could I do? And I, I landed on NBA uh, Game Time or whatever it's called, where you can buy a package and watch eight teams live on your computer or iPad or, or iPhone, right? So I sign up for that, but I find out that I can't get the bulls because it's a local blackout exactly, market. Right. And I'm just like, all these all these rules, you know this is going to come crumbling down. There's yes. no way you can maintain this moat with these tiny exception rules. It, it's just, it's going to turn. And the moment that that turns... I would I would look out below, uh, and yeah. I would I would not want to be a shareholder. You're totally yeah. Right. You know the baseball is exactly like that. Where um, and MLB has a great great great. I mean, I, I just cutting edge. I think the NBA is hot on their heels. Is maybe the second most involved pro network with the internet and delivering stuff, but. It it works out super great for me as a Yankees fan living in Philadelphia. But you can't. I couldn't watch the Phillies. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, I go to New York a couple times a year, and I was uh, I was there last year, and it, it, I'm so used to being able to watch the Yankees on 
my iPhone or iPad, and it stopped working. And I, I was so confused. And I yeah. thought, oh, it's the blackout. I'm actually, now that I'm in New York, I can't do this thing, which is awesome and which is just a totally arbitrary, you know, makes no technical sense rule. And, it, you know, it, anything like that where you're pushing people and you can do things like sign up for like a, a – like a VPN type thing yeah. where you redirect your internet traffic through, you know, make it look like you're in Florida or somewhere right. else and then you can do it. Uh, it it just doesn't end up well. If you're asking your customers to do or, – or not encouraging but like if the rules you're set up make your customers want to do stuff like that, you – I just don't think it's sustainable in the long run. And I think this comes full circle because this comes back to the reason why a lot of people in big organizations use something like Basecamp. They're not actually allowed to, but they do because what they're told they have to do doesn't work. And so people do hack around systems uh, to, to get into, to, to be able to use something that they're not technically permitted to use, but they want to use. And and I think, like like you said, setting up a VPN or having a friend who lives somewhere else, you know, sign up for you in some way. Like HBO Go, people do this all the time with HBO Go, right? They 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 use a friend's login who has cables. Like I can't get yeah. HBO Go. Another great example. I want to watch yeah. HBO. I love HBO. I can't watch HBO because well, I don't most have cable. importantly, and most importantly though, you want to pay for HBO. Yes, right. You're not second. saying you're not saying I want to get it for free. You're saying I would love to pay for HBO. Please, I want to pay for HBO, and I'd be happy to pay a hundred bucks a season, hundred fifty bucks a season, two hundred bucks a season to the NBA to watch the Bulls. I would be, do that in a moment. In a moment, in fact, I was signing up for for NBA season pass or whatever it's called, and it's like hundred and thirty bucks or whatever it is. And like, I was so glad that I could buy my Bulls viewing. I was like so pumped, and then I find out that I can't because I'm in the right. Chicago market. Of course, I want to watch the Bulls. I'm in Chicago. Like, what a weird setup that I can't watch my home team. It just, it's such a busted system. So whenever I see things like that out there, it's so obvious that those, those institutions are, are hanging on for dear life. And who knows when they'll come crumbling down, but something's going to happen. All right. So like MLB, I know that they've had, and there's about the same price. I think it's, it's 120 bucks, some, somewhere around there per season. Um, and again, and they've had year over year growth for years and years and years. I mean, they started even before mobile stuff where you had to use Flash on a website to do it. Uh, but every year there, it's grown. And that's people who are signing up for a $100 subscription, right? Which is a ton, you know, in yeah. this world where everybody says, oh, if it's not free, it's never going to work. People, you know, year over year growth, $100 per season. And it's all of that is without anybody getting their local team, which has got to be 95% <laughs> of the people who would su sign up for it. Right. I mean, can you even imagine how many people would sign up for it, pay the $100 if they could watch their local team? And one of the great things that I think makes sports a sustainable long-term business is that if anything, stuff like Twitter and other things have made the – everybody usually wants to watch sports live anyway or yeah. near live because who wants to watch yesterday's game? You want right. to watch today's game. Uh, it means you're going to be there during the commercial breaks. Right, if totally. you're caught up and you're watching totally. live, those are commercial breaks that that people are aren't going to skip over. Right, I I don't I almost never watch commercial. I don't watch that much commercial TV, but when I do, it's on TiVo and the the commercials get forwarded. But I'm, when I'm watching sports, the commercials play because I'm caught up because I don't want to be behind because I have my Twitter open and and it'll get spoiled. 
it, it, <laughs> totally spot on. And then it's a also, great ads. I know. And and then also, um, uh, you know, you're talking about fans, and so fans are are, are fired up. And like, I was so I truly was so excited to spend 130 dollars with the NBA. I was like, wow, I can do this. I can watch. The bulls on my iPad, killer! I'm in. I am so in, and I was so fired up. And then I get there, and and it's basically like you know, face and hand, like no, you can't. And then I was I was somebody who they had sold 130 bucks, and all of a sudden they tell me no. Like that is a moment where you actually get pissed off at a company. It's not a moment like oh man, that's too bad. You actually are pissed off, and if companies are pissing off people who have money who want to spend it. You can see things are just breaking down there, and, and that just really bummed me out. So I'm just like I was like I was pissed at a company that I wanted to give 130 bucks to. Normally, I'm not pissed at a company I want to buy something from. I'm excited to buy something from a company. Right. So anyway, I, I, the way and the way I see it as a as, like I said that I, I just see it as inevitable that it's going to crumble. Is that if you don't have your customers and users behind you and and their enthusiasm and their loyalty. You've, you're creating an opportunity, and maybe the technology doesn't exist yet, but technology, you know, new technology, that's the whole point of, you know, everything we do and talk about. Uh, it, it's coming, and you're, you're creating opportunities for potential disruptors in the future. It's going to happen. I mean, of course, the tricky thing there, right, is, is licensing, and, and, but, but, but still, like, at one point, somewhere in the future, this is going to get worked out. Clearly, it's clearly going to get worked out, and there's going to be a new company that's able to do something no one's done before, and it's probably not going to be Comcast. Right. Um, well, and the big thing, like you said, they own the pipe. Here's yeah. the here's the thing that could happen. I mean, LTE is already – it's not as fast as my cable pipe, but LTE is pretty fast. Now, the big problem with LTE as it stands now is everybody's got data caps, right? It's, right. it's almost impossible to get an unlimited LTE. Uh, but – you know, five years ago, we were all using Edge iPhones. I mean, this stuff moves fast. Who knows, you know, what cellular wireless networking will be in just five years, five okay. more years. Uh, you know, maybe it's still LTE, but it's the limit is 20 times higher. Or maybe it's something a generation ahead of LTE and it's faster than cable. And they can't keep up because the cable is a literal copper pipe underneath the streets of the city that they can't just dig up all at once. Like, yeah, you know, it may be impossible for someone else to get a physical pipe in the house like uh, like what the cable monopolies have. But I don't know. Something wireless seems to me like it, it would be crazy to me if 10 years from now we don't have something wireless that could replace cable. Totally agree. And, I mean, Comcast will probably try and buy that company. It's funny. I, I, have, a, I have a farmhouse up in Wisconsin about three hours from Chicago, and there's no internet – access up there for me because I'm sort of in a valley and I don't have line of... So first of all, there's no cable uh, internet. Um, there's some line of sight options, but I can't get to those because I'm in a valley and I don't have line of sight. There's Hughes Satellite, which is really terrible and slow. Um, and then there's dial-up, which is really bad. And the only option I had at the time, this is about three years ago, was um, was actually getting a T1 line, which is... you know physically bringing a, a circuit, a, a phone line to your place that only use, and it cost me 600 bucks a month to have a T, <laughs> T1 line. And I did it for a while because I needed internet access because I told myself when I'm up there, I might work or whatever it was, right? So I did this for a while. And then Verizon comes around 
and offers um, 3G, like it's kind of a remote location, but they they added some some 3G towers along the highway and boom, like 3G speed was actually better than the T1. It was like, you know, 50 bucks a month on a MiFi or whatever they're called. And yeah, I know what you mean. Like boom, immediately like 600 bucks. No, I cancel. 50 bucks a month. now, And now they have 4G LTE there, which is the same price and, you know, like 10x faster than 3G or whatever it is. And this is just a matter of three years. Um, and I went from spending $600 reluctantly to, 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 to being excited to spend $50 a month to have this service. So th- things, are, things are changing, obviously, rapidly. Um, and, and I think the companies that are set up to fall are the ones that really piss customers off. And they just... They're just holding on. They're just they're just almost stockpiling money through fees and annoyances because I think they have a sense that like they're going to need that down the road. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, I thought you'd agree, and I. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. It's it's a bummer. It's a bummer. That's the that's the state of things. But it's 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 also kind of exciting because these are the moments where new things happen. Things don't happen. Great new things don't happen. When everyone's content. You know, there has to be struggle. People have to be upset with something. There has to be injustice in some way. Like someone just has to be pissed enough for them to come up with a brand new idea. And so yeah. these moments are actually exciting for me because these are the times when I know something great's going to be here in three years. Unhappy you know? customers are a great opportunity. Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah. And then like you said, business sometimes is not that complicated. Yeah, make something make something that's fair, fairly priced, that works well, that's clear. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's not... it's it's hard still to be in business, but it doesn't have to be anywhere near as hard as people make it to be with all these fancy, strange business models that they're going to figure out down the road. You don't have to figure things out down the road. It's it's not complicated. Sell something that you make. People will buy it. People buy food every day. They buy clothes every day. They buy transportation. People are used to buying things, um, and and that's what that's how they that's how they exist. And to 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 say that 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 model doesn't work doesn't make any sense to me. I think it absolutely works. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Great show. Thank you for being here, Jason. That was fun. Uh, Basecamp.com is uh, the company and the product. And the, the new website for the blog is, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, signalvnoise.com. That's right. But if you just do what we said and Google signal, signal versus noise blog, uh, you'll find it. Yeah, in fact, great example. We tried to get signalvsnoise.com taken. So V, that works. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, it, to guarantee you, will not alter your readership by one person. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. All right, well, I should go because I got to get back to playing Flappy Bird.